Good afternoon everyone and welcome to TJR. Today we have a very special seminar in many ways. It's the last seminar of the term, so we decided to give you a special Almost event. more speakers than audience. Yes, and um, yeah. that's a good thing, I think, so we can exactly. overrun you. In fact, if you guys want to come forward, please. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. We have a special seminar for you, as I mentioned. We have three exceptional speakers today with us. Uh, we decided to keep it in-house for good reasons, because we never actually take advantage of the excellent research that we perform here. And we decided to have a panel whose title is Who is Calling the Shots in International Criminal Justice? Exploring the Role of, justice, of Judges, Prosecutors, and Victims' Institutions. Um, a few words before introducing our speakers. Um, I think this panel touches upon one of the most sensitive issues in international criminal justice. Uh, the idea that normally when we think about international criminal justice, we think about a uniform body a coherent body, but indeed this body is composed of many actors and many actors who have very different uh, um, approaches towards international criminal justice and very different expectations. Of course, on the one hand we have uh, state actors um, and the other hand we have international actors, but at the same time, even within the institution itself, we have a plurality of actors. We have the prosecutorial officer, we have the judges and civil society who still plays an important role, especially before the International Criminal Courts. Um, with the, the, the take of this uh, seminar, hopefully, without spoiling too much, will be that, of course, it's a matter of striking a delicate balance between all these actors, and the truth is that um, it's not uniform, it's far from consistent, and it's far from established, so it's a threshold that moves constantly, and we have to be flexible in approaching, and I think that, is, that uh, contributions like this are very important because it's by facing each other's challenges that we can actually find where the line is to be drawn. Uh, our speakers, I will start with Matilde. Matilde is a DPhil here in Social Legal Studies. Her research focuses on the role of prosecutorial offices, especially in international and domestic courts, uh, and how they can shape and how they can affect post-conflict situation, post-conflict societies. Um, and uh, she has extensive experience in the field. Uh, most relevant, she has done fieldwork in Uganda, where she interviewed a lot of actors who had directly a role in the conflict. Um, and she worked extensively at the International Criminal Court in the Office of the Prosecutor. And, uh, Unsurprisingly, her topic will deal with the prosecutorial act actors in this uh, dialogue. Uh, her presentation is called The Room Statute and its Prosecutorial Actors, Equal Brothers in Arms. I will give you the word immediately and I will proceed with introducing you at a later stage. Thank you, Matilda. Thank you. Um, yeah. So thank you, Daniel, for this really kind introduction and everyone for coming today. It's a uh, I have to say it's quite nice to keep things in-house for once, and I'm very happy to be able to present at OGJR, having been part of the committee for over four years, and with my friends, Leila and Nora, who are both friends and colleagues and share the pleasure and pains of uh, <laughs> studying international criminal justice here in Oxford with me. So, um, yeah, as Daniel said, my presentation is titled The Rome Statute and its Prosecutorial Actors Equal Brothers in Arms, and I think 
uh, Daniel's introduction was very good in pointing out that actually what we are going to talk about today is precisely this like lack of, of homogeneity and the fact that actually um, ICJ is, is still developing and actors play a big role in this development. Um, also, um, as Daniel said, I work on prosecutorial actors, but I don't work on prosecutors, strictly speaking. So today I'm not going to be talking about Fatou Bensouda or Luis Moreno Campo or domestic prosecutors per se, but I'm going to talk more about uh, the uh, prosecutorial actors that are uh, part and then form the complementary system of the Rome Statute, and I'm going to tell you why I think they're different and why I think that difference matters. Uh, between them. So this is roughly the structure of my talk. So firstly I'm going to introduce kind of my research question which is one of the different questions in my PhD uh, and then I'm going to talk about three dimensions which I think can help us understand the difference between these actors, the ICC and the state. And then I go back to asking are they equal brothers in arms and if not, as you can probably imagine I say they're not, uh, I'll tell you why I think this is important. So the premise of my research question is that um, the Rome Statute system, and I talk here about a system because I want to I wanna move away from understanding the Rome Statute as it being just about the ICC. Like I feel really strongly about it. A lot of the literature in the last 15x years has worked on the ICC. I think we need to go back to actually thinking of it as a system because that's actually what the Rome Statute established. So, so my premise is that the Rome Statute was set up to produce prosecutorial justice through different institutional avenues and that it has at its disposal by virtue of the complementarity framework. And this complementarity framework endows both the state and the ICC with the ability to produce prosecutorial justice. Um, but my question here is, does the same framework enable these actors to be comparably capable prosecutorial actors of trial justice under the Rome Statute? Um, and there's obviously a number of sub-questions that uh, emerge up to this. Um, for example, how does the state, how does the state and the SC differ as two institutional actors tasked with prosecution? And are they equally able in terms of equal duties, expectations, abilities, interests, and power? And finally, what is the consequence of their difference? Now, obviously, as you can imagine, and I'm, I'm kind of giving you the punchline at the beginning so we can kind of trace back the analysis, uh, my punchline is actually that despite this theoretical, common legal and epistemological framework that these actors get through the Rome Statute and through being part of the complementarity regime, uh, and the fact that they become and they look similar, they look like equal prosecutorial justice producer, in reality they are not. And they have intrinsic differences which will matter when we look at how they produce justice on the ground and pragmatically through the trial process. And um, so taking one step back, um, this is a question, an idea that I didn't have when I went to the field. Uh, obviously, we all know that, again, uh, ICJ is not homogenous, but uh, before I went to the field, I didn't realize basically what difference there would be between these different actors. And I had gone to the field with this uh, rhetoric in mind, this, this rhetoric of the International Criminal Court, which often presented the Rome Statute system as an integrated, cohesive, uh, system where states and the ICC together would form this uh, global justice system and together work towards a common mission. You know, this is I know this is rhetoric, but it, it was you know it was a permanent rhetoric in the la in the first ten years of the ICC, and so it was quite important in shaping at least my idea of a sort of theoretical uh, way of understanding the Rome Statute system. Um, then I went to the field, and actually the first thing I, I, I realized through some of my informants was that actually this rhetoric obviously is flawed, as all rhetorics are. 
And one, I guess that maybe the key hint to, to my research into this framing was what one of the uh, delegates to the Rome conference told me. I mean, this is a person I interviewed in The Hague, but she had been a delegate uh, in Rome in 1998. And she told me that one of the key challenges of shaping the Rome statute was the fact that the state was incorporated in it as a unified legal entity, even though the state that is then tasked with prosecution is not. And this reality of the state as this, this real actor, which is a complex actor acting on the ground, was not obviously incorporated and understood by the Rome statute. Now, we all know why this happens, because law cannot <laughs> uh, understand the nuance of reality, but then it's, in, you know, obviously it's something we need to take into account when we try to understand how these actors operate on the ground, I think. And, and obviously the second quote, which I'm not going to read to you, hinted at the same idea at a more microscopic level, that when you look at the Ugandan state uh, on the ground, what, what you saw was a lack of coordination, cooperation, and disconnect between all the microscopic actors that would have cooperated and worked together towards trial justice. So this is kind of what led me to thinking of a framework to, to understand these differences between these two actors. And I analyze these three different dimensions, a formal one, an existential one, and a physical one. And again, these, these uh, labels are you know, kind of a work in progress. So if you can think of a better label, please tell me. Uh, existential seems a bit deep for some of the people who've read my <laughs> chapter, but, but I like it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so the formal dimension is of the, sort of the most obvious dimension. It's the dimension that defines how the ICC as the prosecutorial ICC, and by this I don't mean the ICC as just the Office of the Prosecutor, but I mean the ICC as this big organization created to prosecute international crimes with all the different complex uh, extended networks that it has. Um, so how the ICC and the state are formally brought together by the Rome Statute as a legal document to formally constitute the Rome Statute system and to be assigned specific formal tasks. So in a sense this is basically a reading of the text of the Rome Statute to understand the tasks of these actors. Um, obviously, if you look at the preamble of the Rome Statute, you, uh, we, as we all know, uh, we know that complementarity is one of the crucial parts of it and which establishes that the international court shall be a complementary to national criminal courts. And this is really the, the core of, of the complementarity principle and rule. Um, and this is what creates in a terminology which I really like a joint venture of international criminal justice. And the reason why I like this idea is because actually complementarity gives you this idea that the state and the SEC will 50-50 share the burden of prosecution in a sense, so at least potentially they can. Uh, whereas I think in reality it's, it's quite clear that they don't and, and they struggle to do so. Um, but basically what I argue as well is that the same uh, framework, the formal framework of the Rome Statute that brings together these actors also clearly identifies and, and emphasizes the difference, the difference between them. So just to give a brief overview, and I've done a very lengthy analysis on this which I'm not going to really uh, talk about today because there's no time. But basically complementarity, for example, uh, creates an equal formal division of labor between these actors, but at the same time it obviously places a primary onus of prosecution on domestic courts and uh, creates the ICC as a court of last resort. And of course we all know this. Um, at the same time, um, it turns the ICC into the sole arbiter of whether the state is carrying out complementary worthy prosecutions. And, th and this is obviously something that has to do with admissibility and we could talk it, uh, extensively about it, I won't today, but basically I think this already sort of shifts the balance of what the two actors can do according to the Rome Statute. Now the second uh, thing I want to talk about is positive complementarity. Um, this is obviously not a rule of the Rome Statute, it's not part of the Rome Statute, but it's a policy that was uh, developed from it. 
And it has to do with the fact that the OTP, so the Office of the Prosecutor, will encourage domestic prosecutions. Uh, and this is obviously because domestic courts have the priority in terms of uh, the primary onus. Um, but the interesting thing in this respect is that actually the OTP declares very clearly that it will not get involved in uh, helping domestic prosecutions to prosecute, will not do capacity building. So basically they say we promote and we encourage, but we, we keep away from it. And as, at the same time, they also say that obviously states hold effectively the best capacity to prosecute. They are closer to the evidence and the facts. And, and kind of in between the line, what this rule says is that states may be better at understanding uh, local situations <coughs> in terms of prosecutions. And again, I think this also shifts the balance once again in favor of one actor uh, over the other. Now, I think I'll keep the most responsible prosecutorial policy, and we can talk about it maybe in the Q&A in case, but um, the last one which I think is very important is cooperation. I mean, cooperation is another one of the pillars of the Rome Statute, as I think we all know, uh, but if you read the Rome Statute, Part 9 is completely dedicated to the principle of cooperation. It actually places a, an exclusive onus on states to support the ICC, but not vice versa. Now, some commentators, not many, say that you can read in this also that the, the, the ICC will have an onus to help states, but really this is not in the text explicitly. And I think this is one of the key points where you see that there's definitely a clear imbalance in how the ICC and the states and the state are tasked as prosecutorial actors in the Rome Statutes, uh, in the text of the Rome Statute, and how basically there is a different division of labor between them. And, and overall, I think that basically the Rome Statute is a legal code by tasking the ICC and the state with the same objective also confirms the difference and at the same time the need to create a framework under which the common objective can be pursued despite their difference. So basically it's kind of like a loop, but uh, you know, the, the difference between these two actors is quite evident and at the same time they have to be brought together so that they can work towards a common goal and this is not an easy task basically. Uh, now the second dimension, uh, which I'll go over very briefly, is what I call an existential dimension and it has to do with how I think the state and the ICC as these two actors actually sit within the project of the Rome Statute and within the broad framework of action that the Rome Statute creates uh, and at the same time how they sit within the reality of the situation on the ground. So basically how they relate to what is the situation that they want to sort of intervene in with uh, prosecutions. And I argue basically that the ICC and the state have very different positionalities. And I know this is a term that we get from anthropology, it's not a very legal term or an IR term, but basically I, you know, it's just about how they situate themselves vis-a-vis -vis these two spaces of action in a way. Um, so the first one, their positionality vis-a-vis -vis the Rome Statute I think is, is quite uh, different and is quite interesting to look at because obviously we have on the one hand the ICC, which is the bespoke creation of the Rome Statute, and you can see that there's a full overlap between the ICC and the Rome Statute. So the existence of one confirms the existence of the other and the validity of the other. And at the same time, the Rome Statute acts as the code of conduct and the legitimizing force for the ICC's interventions. It's its meaning-making tool, so basically it lends a conceptual framework to the ICC to act and also defines its worldview. It defines what kind of justice the ICC can produce. So basically it has a sort of a very strong existential power on the ICC in a sense. And this basically renders the ICC not a super partisan actor of the Rome Statute. I mean the ICC's core interest is that of confirming and pro producing what the Rome Statute dictates and, and the mission of the Rome Statute and that of the ICC are one and the same. Now if you look at the relationship of the state with the Rome Statute this is quite different actually because the Rome Statute is to the state kind of like a social contract with the ICC and with the mission of the Rome Statute. 
So what I mean by this is that states created the Rome Statute, but then they enter it as <coughs> external players. So basically they're not defined by it, they exist independently of it, they don't derive their legitimacy from it as actors in IR, but also as actors in international criminal justice. So much so that states actually don't even need the Rome Statute to prosecute international crimes. I mean, in the case I look at Uganda, uh, the only case they had of Thomas Coelho um, was on the basis of the, the Domestic Penal Code and of the Geneva Convention Act. They didn't even look at the Rome Statute, even though they incorporated it in domestic law, but just to help the ICC carry out domestic investigations, basically. So, and more importantly, actually, the state uh, can have multiple alignments to the Rome Statute. So while the ICC has a complete overlap with the Rome Statute, the state can decide that well, actually, the government is against, so we're going to leave the Rome Statute, uh, whilst our judges tell us that we should arrest Bashir when Bashir comes to our country. You know? so, so basically, the state can have multiple, in a sense, personas towards the Rome Statute. And I think this, this shows a very different positionality that the two actors can have vis-a-vis -vis the overall project. Um, if we look at the positionality that these two actors have vis-a-vis -vis the situation on the ground, and by that I mean the situation of Uganda, of Congo, of any of the situations of the ICC, we see a kind of mirror image of what I just described above. So the ICC enters any situation as an external actor, it's a remove actor, and enters as a sort of neutral actor and saying, you know, we on the basis of the law, we come in and we're going to try to carry out justice for you. Um, they also interpret the reality on the ground on the basis of the meaning-making tools that they derive from the Rome Statute. So concepts like incident, gravity, most responsible victims are not neutral concepts. They are concepts that derive from the policy and from such itself. So basically, the SEC doesn't come as a neutral actor and doesn't uh, act locally through a tailored practice, so a practice that is tailored to the domestic reality. And finally, I think the SEC uses the domestic reality as a cleansed space. So they have a selective engagement with it. They basically decide who to interact with, what evidence to collect, what incidents to look at, um, whereas I think the state wouldn't have as much of a prerogative to do the same thing. If we look at the state, on the other hand, I think the state has a clear symbiotic relationship with the reality on the ground. Um, so geographically, politically, the state overlaps um, with the, uh, basically the territory and with, with what goes on on, on, the, on the ground. And it is an actual conflict and post-conflict and can be defined by it, but also defined the conflict. The state is clearly not a super partisan actor at home and it has multiple opportunities for post-conflict justice, and it may overall therefore produce trial justice independently of the Rome Statute, as I said above. So again, this shows that re regarding these two spaces which are crucial to the production of, of trial justice on the ground through the framework of the Rome Statute, th these two actors have quite different positions, really. And I think these, these matters, uh, mostly because of, of the second point, that basically these positionalities determine not just how prosecutorial justice is produced, but also how these actors are constructed in doing so, basically how they understand themselves to operate and how they can operate vis-a-vis -vis all these multiple relations. Um, and finally, I'll look very briefly at the physical dimension. So basically just like what are the effective structures of these two actors? And if I look, again, uh, if I go back to the uh, introduction that quote from my uh, informant from the Rome conference, you know, when uh, she told me that basically one of the problems was that the state was incorporated as a sort of monolithic, abstract entity in the Rome Statute. I mean, we can think of both the SEC and the state in these terms. Like, if we think of the SEC as a monolithic actor, this is what we think of, right? So even if they've moved to a new building, I think this is the image we'll all have in mind until the next generation comes in and they, they will have a new building in mind. 
but basically, actually, the ICC is not just that. Uh, even though we can accept that there is a one-court approach. I mean, that building is the ICC. Most of what goes on goes on in that building. Of course, they have, like, missions on the ground, etc. But, you know, there, it is a cohesive institution. It was created by the Rome Statute. If you read the text of the Rome Statute, everything is in it, obviously. And, you know, stru internal structures then derived from it. But, um, but basically, there is a complex internal institutional reality. And you can just look at the organigrams of each single individual organ and... Um, subsection to just understand that. And uh, I like the idea of, uh, of, of thinking of the OTP and all these different offices as a, as a sort of conveyor belt of production line. You know, If we think of, pro of uh, justice production, prosecutorial justice, we know that basically it will have to go through this entire sort of framework of actors. And then it will go to the judges, to the different chambers, it will go through the uh, you know, different victims' units, etc. So, so this is the structure that the ICC has at its disposal uh, for prosecutorial justice, or at least the center of it. If we think of Uganda, and this is kind of my last point, I mean, Uganda is the monolithic actor that entered the Rome Statute, that referred to the situation of Uganda, uh, that cooperated maybe this kind of actor. So the Republic of Uganda, the formal state, uh, but really, the actor that is engaged in prosecutorial justice is a very different actor. It's a network of decentralized institutional sub-realms which all have a stake in a trial justice pursuit. And I kind of extrapolate this from my study of the Coelho trial, which I'm not really talking about today, which is a shame. But basically, in that case, you could see how all these actors, the government, local and national domestic courts, including the International Crimes Division, but also the Supreme Court and the uh, Constitutional Court, and then ministries, the Amnesty Commission, the Army, the Justice Law and Order Sector, they all had a stake in, in trial justice. And uh, I show all these pictures, which are pictures I took during my fieldwork, which actually show you, in a sense, the dislocation of all these prosecutorial actors in Uganda, very different from the ICC picture that I showed above. I mean, obviously, I could have shown you different floors, and this is a prosecution office, but, but really, they all look the same anyway. <laughs> Whereas this is really, this is just some of the actors in Uganda. And to see down here, you see the courts of law, um, President Museveni on the t-shirt of one of the people from one of the affected communities, the International Crimes Division, local government, um, and so on. So basically, just to conclude, I mean, uh, what I think is crucial to this last bit of my analysis is that uh, what we see is that the ICC is on the one hand as uh, the permanent, non-changing end of the complementarity structure. So the same structure that I present above is applied in every situation, and every situation will go through that sort of process, through those uh, individual offices and so on, whereas the state is kind of the moving end of the complementarity uh, regime. And basically, so trial justice will have domestically very different structures in every single situation, and uh, they might not be the same from one state to the other. You know, Uganda has an amnesty commission, has a justice law and order sector, but that doesn't mean that every state will. And that, I think, makes a difference on how domestically you can uh, produce prosecutorial justice vis-a-vis -vis the ICC, which instead, obviously, um, has at its disposal always the same structures and so has a more uniform way of, of dealing with this. Um, so basically, overall, are they equal brothers in arms? No, I don't think so. And I think I've tried to show it very briefly through all these different, um, basically, um, areas. And I think... The question that derives from this finally is like, can being part of a common project alone guarantee comparable execution of justice if actually the actors are so different? And I think that the answer maybe is yes, maybe no, but what's important to understand is that we need to think of prosecutorial justice as being 
filtered through these different complex agential realities of the ICC and the state. So I think we should stop thinking of them as being sort of these abstract perfect actors, but we need to really realize in every situation what they're like and what they're not. I mean, we're lucky that the ICC kind of is the same in every situation. So once we studied that for once, we, we understand it probably better, maybe, although it's changing and the structure keeps moving and prosecutorial strategies change and so on. But, but the state is definitely a moving target, and I think it's an important moving target that we need to consider in our analysis. And yeah, so I think I'll end it there. Thank you very much.